welcome to another episode of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. As always, I'm Lisa Pettibone, and this week I'm staying put to talk about how far our food travels. This month, I'm looking at how my diet impacts the climate and what I can do to lower my footprint. I'm going on a literal climate diet, I guess. Last week, I looked at different types of food and found that cutting beef from your diet can make an enormous impact. This week, I'm going to figure out where our food comes from and the relative impact of food miles. As I said last week, agriculture is responsible for about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. About three quarters of this comes from meat production. This means that the most important change you can make to your diet to cut down on carbon emissions is to eat less meat, primarily less red meat. Food miles become more important, however, if you eat a plant-based diet, because a larger proportion of non-meat emissions come from transportation. But that's not all. Vegetables like potatoes produce so little carbon to grow that the bulk of the emissions will come from how you cook them. Food miles have gotten a lot of press in the climate literature, and they've really gotten a bad shake. But I'm here to say today that food miles aren't really that big of a deal. And what's more important is what kind of food miles we're talking about. So yeah, food travels shocking distances to get to our plates, averaging about 1,200 kilometers or 750 miles, according to the David Suzuki Foundation. It's common sense that food grown in the next town over will generally have a lower carbon footprint than food grown on the other side of the planet. But as I said, where transportation emissions are important is in the kind of transportation. If your food got flown in, it likely has emissions around 10 times higher than local calories. Air freight causes 99 times the emissions of transport by ship. So if you're eating non-local foods, make sure that they're foods like bananas, avocados, etc. that can stand long periods of time on cargo ships rather than needing to be air freighted in. If you're getting non-local fruits and vegetables, high contenders for foods that come in by air are strawberries, asparagus, anything that can't stay out about a week without refrigeration. Produce shipped from distant lands by boat, like bananas, often have a lower carbon footprint than the same produce grown nearby if you live in a cold region. This is because the food's production emissions skyrocket when you grow food in the wrong place, like bananas in Germany. Then you need to use more fertilizer often grow in heated greenhouses, which require far more energy than food grown under natural conditions. In Germany, where I live, these differences are possible to spot. Tomatoes grown out of season are often available from the Netherlands, which subsidizes greenhouses for year-round production. Similar varieties can also be shipped in from Northern Africa. The African tomatoes are likely to be more climate friendly. Fun fact, This is also why a single long stem rose from the Netherlands has the same footprint as a beef hamburger, thanks to how bad are bananas for these calculations. 
but this all speaks to the importance of local seasonal produce. Then you can generally take the guessing out of the carbon emissions game because the foods with the highest transportation emissions are those grown under artificial conditions and flown in to you. Now again, I want to emphasize, cutting meat from your diet has a far larger impact than saying no to winter strawberries. But if, like me, you've already gone vegan or vegetarian, this is how you can reduce your carbon food print even more. So here's what's in season in November in Germany. Where I live, we're at the tail end of spinach and pumpkin season and entering the months of cabbage. Red cabbage, kale, Brussels sprouts, you name it. Root vegetables are also in, like parsnips and rutabaga. You can also check your country or special labels in the supermarket for local produce where you live. So I had to translate some of these from German because I didn't know the English names, and it made me realize that I've never cooked a lot of this stuff before and couldn't even really identify it. I think part of my climate emissions are the fact that I, all, I can think of six, seven things to do with an avocado, but I can't think of six or seven things to do with a rutabaga. So my challenge this week is I'm going to find one type of seasonal vegetable I've never cooked before and make it into something delicious. I'm going to see if I can even find something with really only a German name that makes sense to me and cook with that. Schwarzwurzel, Butterrüben, and Topinambur, I'm looking at you. If you cook with these, I would love it if you could share a recipe with me. And this takes me to perhaps the biggest lesson that I've learned doing this research. Sure, food miles aren't as big of a deal as meat production. Yes, I'm going to keep repeating that because part of what interests me in this podcast is making the changes that make the biggest impact on the climate. But at the same time, the easiest way to reduce my food miles and move to a more climate-friendly diet is to eat more local produce that's grown with the seasons. But this is really challenging for me because I think in this globalized world, we're used to all kind of eating the same thing and all eating things that are accessible all year round. Tomatoes, avocados, bananas. This takes the humble root vegetable and the humble cabbage out of the running because no one needs cabbage in summer. So cabbage in winter, what do we do with it? And that's why I'm really excited about this challenge this week. This is something I've been wanting to do for years now. It was actually my New Year's resolution last year was to cook with new seasonal produce I'd never used before once a month, all year. And I didn't do so well. But what I can say is when my son was just being introduced to solid foods, this is when my family became introduced to parsnips. A lot of books on baby nutrition that we read recommended parsnips as something that was very easy to digest. So we cooked them up and pureed them for him. And we realized, wow, these are really good. A quick recipe for you, if you've never used parsnips before, I would recommend taking about half parsnip, half potatoes, slicing them, steaming them, and then mash them together with some milk and a little bit of oil. And you can make a really great kind of extra spicy mashed potato with that. 
Parsnips look a lot like carrots, but they taste kind of like a cross between a carrot and a potato. Maybe like a potato with a little bit of spice to it, a little bit of a kick. They're not spicy, but they have a nice extra kick of flavor. What's giving me hope this week? I finished N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth Trilogy last week. This is a series of books I've been devouring like a decadent chocolate cake. My husband had to stop complaining about how much I talked about these books, I think because he realized that he wasn't going to get me to stop. Now, I think I mentioned my obsession with Jemisin before, but it's only grown as I read her work and listen to her speak. For those of you not in the know, N.K. Jemisin is a science fiction and fantasy writer who has won great loads of awards and been heralded as an important new voice in science fiction and fantasy. She does a lot of things you don't see often enough in science fiction. Her strong characters are majority women, people of color, and queer. She draws from African historical traditions, and she is interested in the plight of the oppressed. Now, I was fully on her wavelength after reading her short story compilation, How Long Till Black Future Month, and I had heard that the Broken Earth trilogy was a great example of climate fiction. I don't think I'd personally try to sell it as the latter, but it's been some of the best fiction I've read in a year of great books. And when I got to the end, I broke down several times crying over the final chapters. No doubt the tourists in the cafe I was sitting in thought I'd just lost a loved one. Perhaps in a way I had. But although Jemison has the cojones to kill off her characters and make everyone left alive suffer unbearably, the books end in a way that gave me so much hope. They really warmed my chest cavity with this feeling of the future can be better. So yeah, I did bawl my eyes out, but it was tears of joy. And just maybe, tears of hope. Next week, I'll report on my success of cooking local seasonal vegetables, and I'll share some climate-friendly recipes as we close in on Thanksgiving. Hey, I need your help. The holiday season is approaching, and with it, countless trips back home or abroad, Feasts of roast beast, both tofu and not, and gift giving that's both naughty and nice. In December, I'm going to talk about gifts. And I want to hear your ideas on how to give and receive gifts that are gentler on the climate. Do you ask for experiences rather than physical presents? Do you make things to give your loved ones? Or do you throw it all overboard and say, no, I'm not going to celebrate any of these materialistic holidays. Leave me a message on Anchor or drop me a line at lisa at myclimatediet.org. I'll feature your ideas and tips all next month. So consider this your gift to me. Thanks. Thanks also to David from Kvents for letting me use his music. And thanks to you too. Since I got back from my summer of house cleaning, I've been humbled by how many people listen to this podcast. This has been a labor of love for me, and I appreciate you giving me a listen. Feel free to drop me a line with your climate tips, things you like or don't, or just a kind word at lisa at myclimatediet.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. 
And don't forget to rate My Climate Diet on Apple Podcasts. That makes it easier for others to find me and start their own climate diet. Because if everyone went on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I told you.